All right, so let's recap. Last, this whole teaching series, uh, week one, we talked about the Bible. We talked about the scriptures and why we can trust and believe uh, that they are accurate. We talked about how there is no manuscript from this time, from these time periods that we have anywhere near close to as many uh, that line up with the scriptures. We have 5,800 manuscripts of the New Testament alone. I'm going to say it one more time. 5,800 manuscripts of the New Testament alone. Uh, other pieces from that time period that we have usually average from like 10 to 30. It is unquestionably the most uh, manuscripts we have from this time period. Week two, we talked about God's existence, why we can believe that God does exist. And what we used was rational arguments in regards to things. So you can go back. I'm not going to go with this because I need to move forward. Week three, we talked about understanding good and evil. Uh, this was a fun one. This was online only. Then the following week, we talked about different faiths uh, and what their beliefs are. We talked about Mormonism, Islam, Jehovah's Witnesses, Hinduism, Buddhism. Those are what we talked about in week four. Week five, we talked about what Jesus said about himself and the claims that he made at who, about who he is. And then last week, we talked about what others said about Jesus, both biblical and non-biblical sources. That was our recap. Today, we're talking about why we can believe that Jesus is who Jesus said he was. All right. First thing we need to talk about today. If you can believe that Jesus rose from the grave, then everything else that is written about him in the scripture is not far-fetched. I'm going to say it one more time. That was the other thing I needed to say. You just, you just cued me. You just cued me. The boiler's not on today. So if you get hot, next week you're going to be hot. The boiler will be on, and it's it just telling you. If you get hot regularly, sit towards the middle, because the boilers are on the outside. I just got triggered. It's not on today. So if you're a cooler person, you stop it. So if you can believe Jesus rose from the dead, if you can believe that, everything else he did is not far-fetched. Because if a man can rise himself from the grave, then him feeding thousands of people is not crazy. I mean, death itself is something that is not beaten. So if he can do that, he can do anything. The next thing is this. If you're looking for perfect proof, you're going to be disappointed. If you're looking for, I want no possible doubt that Jesus died and rose again, I can assure you that that is not something that I can give you. Here's, here's, here's another thing that you need to understand. In a court of law, they ask for, can you prove beyond reasonable doubt? Not beyond possible doubt, because possible doubt can always be argued. After all, there is a reason why we have courtrooms. There is a reason why we have courtrooms, because anything can be defended in some possible way for the most part. All right. All right. But I'm going to argue today why we believe that Jesus did die and rise again on the third day. All right, we're going to specifically look at the death and resurrection of Jesus, and the reason why is because this is what our entire faith is based upon. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 13 and 14 says this, If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. So Paul says, listen, if Jesus didn't rise from the grave, Churches are worthless. Our preaching is worthless. It's all worthless. That is what Paul says. If Jesus didn't do this, it's all for naught. But if he did, 
and it's everything. Why? Because everything in the Christian faith revolves around this specific event. Why? Well, we believe that his death covered and paid the price for our sins. Well, we also believe that uh, without his death, there is no price that is paid, and therefore his resurrection is not possible if he didn't die. So his resurrection and his death are completely tied together. The other thing is Jesus predicts his death and resurrection. In Mark 9, chapter, um, Mark chapter 9, verse 30 and 31, this is what it says. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man, and Jesus was referring to himself and the disciples would have known this, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days, he will rise. This is Jesus calling his own shot. Jesus says, I will die, and in three days, I will rise. Okay? So, if Jesus makes this prediction about himself, if Jesus doesn't fulfill this prediction, then Jesus is made out to be a liar, and his sacrifice on the cross is then not as powerful. Okay? Do we understand this so far? Okay, good. If Jesus' prediction is wrong, it's not of perfect value. It doesn't, cover the, it doesn't cover and pay the price for our sin. Now let's move into everything else. Now part of the things that we have to do when we're building a defense for why we believe Jesus did do these things is we also have to other, understand the other side of the, of the argument. So we believe that Jesus died and rose again, but then there are we would refer to them as conspiracy. Um, some people would refer to it as fact, but we would say conspiracy. And when looking at conspiracies specifically, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull some things that as I uh, took information from a, it's actually a video series you can watch online, now, yeah, online with Right Now Media, called Cold Case Christianity by J. Warner Wallace. And he says, listen, if there's going to be a conspiracy that Jesus didn't actually die or didn't actually rise from the grave, then there's a few things that need to take place in order for a conspiracy to actually be possible. The first thing is, there needs to be a small number of co-conspirators, as small as possible. So let's put it this way. If we were going to make up a conspiracy about something that took place, if it was just me and Jeremy, Jeremy and I could hold each other accountable to make sure that we never actually tell the truth, okay? But if there's 45 to 50 of us in this room and we all have to hold a conspiracy together, the likelihood that one of you will actually end up fessing up over time is much more likely. So the smaller number of people, the better. So if we wanted his death and resurrection to be a conspiracy, we would have to see less people. Well, we know that his death had a lot of witnesses. After all, I mean, even historical uh, historians of the time wrote about Jesus and his death, that he was crucified on a cross, not just biblical sources. What about the resurrection, though? The resurrection, well, you know, we have 11 apostles that he appeared to, eventually 12 again. We know in Acts 1.15, I think Acts 1.15 is actually up here, uh, there were 120 people in the upper room who had been a witness of Jesus's resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8, we come across this amazing passage, which many of you may not know this. For what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, 
And then he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. All right, and I'm going to put a slash right there, and then I'm going to read verse 8. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Okay, verses 3 through 7 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when Paul says, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Paul is quoting a creed that was constantly being repeated in the New Testament church. So you have to understand, the Gospels, the epistles of the New Testament were not written right away. Okay, It wasn't like Jesus died and Mark pulled out a pen and started writing. That's not how it worked. It was actually about 10 to 15 years later that Mark wrote, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. But what Paul quotes here is a creed that was repeated in the church over and over and over again, and it actually dates back to within a year or two of the resurrection. So why is this important? What's important about it is that the church itself was quoting and naming names and naming numbers about people who were witnesses of Jesus' resurrection everywhere they went. So here's the problem with that if you want to make it a conspiracy. If you want to make it a conspiracy, you're not out there for everybody to hear and everybody to know and to name names and say, hey, this is what happened. It was the truth. We had hundreds of people, Paul says, that were witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. This wasn't just a small number. And the reason why they named names and the reason why they listed numbers was because they wanted them to go back to the eyewitnesses and say, did this really happen? The other thing, so we first have a small number of co-conspirators. The second thing for, in regards to conspiracies, you don't want to have to hold on to the conspiracy for a long period of time. Don't raise your hands, but if you've ever lied about something before, okay, thank you, Bob. If you've ever lied about something before, uh, you would know that it's really easy to tell a lie in the, in the moment, right? I mean, it's really easy just to make up something on the spot, say it. In fact, I remember, just I'll close your ears, Dad. I remember as a kid, I could make up a lie on the spot, like, with no problem. Because it was just so natural, right? I mean, it was just so easy for me to lie about something. But over time, if I had to stick with the lie, it would end up becoming a problem, why? Because if it wasn't actually true, then I have to remember what I said before, and then I have to remember what I said later, and then I have to remember what I said. And the longer time goes on, the more difficult it becomes to actually remember the lie. But the issue is, when we get to the apostles, <laughs> we're talking about a possible conspiracy, and I'm putting it in quotes, conspiracy that had to last six decades, because this is how long these people held on to this. For six decades, it never changed. I would argue, again, based on this, that this wasn't a conspiracy. Third thing is that there's excellent communication between co-conspirators. So, like, if you want to actually tell a lie and you have multiple people who are a part of this lie, you need to be able to actually confer with one another. Um, I would argue, and I, I don't know this because I'm not in law enforcement, I've never been in this kind of situation, but I would argue that this is why you would separate people so that you can see if stories actually line up, and it, it helps to figure it out, right? So I've done this with my children. Um, if I want to know what actually happened in my household, 
I'm going to send Caleb to another room, and I'll ask, I'll ask Micah first, hey, Micah, what happened? And he can tell me one thing. And then if Caleb's story lines up with Micah's, I know most likely that it was true. But the problem is that when we come to the apostles and when we come to these eyewitnesses, they were spread so far apart and there was no Facebook. There was no phones. There was no way to actually communicate. We've got people in India. We've got people in Italy. We've got people in northern Africa. And all throughout the time, the story doesn't change, even though they're not able to actually communicate with one another. Why? Because the story was true. It actually lined up. It actually happened. Another thing that's true is there has to be no pressure or no consequences. I don't know about you, but when we start tagging consequences or punishments or start putting pressure on something, it starts to become real, right? Um, Zoe right now. Zoe can be a joy and Zoe can be a pain. I, can't ask, I ask my children to do little things all the time. All, like, hey, can you feed the dogs? I'm trying to teach my kids responsibility. Hey, can you feed the dogs? Hey, can you let the dog out? Hey, can you, and then this is Zoe right now. Zoe, you need to go to the bathroom. No, I don't want to. You need to go to the bathroom, Zoe. No, I don't want to. And then I say, Zoe, if you don't like this, I'm sorry. I say, Zoe, if you don't get on that toilet in 10 seconds, I'm going to smack her butt. Guess what that girl does? She gets up and she goes right to the toilet. Why? Because when we start to put pressure on things, we end up, we realize that people fold under pressure. The apostles, the eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection were persecuted for what they saw. Some people would argue they were persecuted for what they believe. I'm going to say they were persecuted for what they saw, for what they witnessed, to the point of death. And what we find historically, again, not just biblical sources, but in historical sources. If you remember last week, I mentioned, I mentioned Josephus. And Josephus wrote in history that no one, no one who was an eyewitness was willing to give up what they believed about Jesus to the point of death. This is what we're talking about when we talk about why we shouldn't believe it's a conspiracy, but instead we should believe that Jesus actually died and rose again. With an understanding of these things, we can believe that he died, specifically. All right, historians outside the scriptures say that Jesus died. I mentioned them last week. You can go back if you want to listen. Uh, we also, Matthew 27, 62 through 66. Did I throw that on there? Sweet. I'm going to read this passage. It says, the next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver, referring to Jesus, said, after three days, I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he had been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. This is, this is just amazing because what happened in, in trying to prove that Jesus would actually not rise from the grave, it becomes a greater proof for why he did. They sent Roman guards to guard the tomb so that they couldn't actually steal the body. Now, 
I'm going to tell you right now, there ain't no way a fisherman, a tax collector, or any of these people are going to overpower Roman guards guarding the tomb of Jesus. It's not going to happen. So, we know that Jesus died because this body was put in a tomb, and the Roman government itself said, hey, we're going to guard that tomb of that dead body. Number three, Pilate confirms his death. Mark 15, verses 30, uh, 43 through 45. Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. Jesus died. He died. He, I mean, there's, there's nothing, there's no way. I mean, it, it's surprising how fast he died, but was it actually surprising considering the fact that he had already been flogged, that he had already had a crown of thorns on his head, that he had already suffered such great persecution, and then they hang him on a cross? I mean, it wasn't going to take as long for Jesus to die as it would the other criminals who hadn't endured what Jesus had endured that day. He was dead. Another thing, they pierced his body instead of breaking his legs. John 19, 31 through 37 says this. Now it was the day of preparation and the next Sabbath was to be a special Sabbath because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the cross during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. So here's what you have to understand. So if you're hanging on a cross, okay, nails, and now some, I'll say this. Some people, I, I don't think I've talked about this, um, crucifixions happened with ropes for the most part, but there was also nails. Jesus was nailed to a cross. That's what the history says, and there is actual archaeological evidence of a crucified body uh, that we have found uh, in a tomb with literal spikes in the bones. Actual thing, okay? So when people say they didn't actually do that, no, they did. It's archaeologically proven that they nailed people to crosses. Okay. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and those of the other. Why would they do this? Well, even though your legs are nailed to a cross, you don't want your body to collapse. You want your lungs to be supported. So they would push their bodies up with their legs in hopes of just gaining any kind of breath while they were being crucified. This is gruesome, but this is what was taking place. And so what the Romans learned and what the Jews knew was that if you wanted to speed up the process of death via crucifixion, you would break the legs so that they could no longer boost themselves up. Instead, the entire body would collapse on the cross. Again, it's gruesome, but this is what they're doing. When they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they didn't break his legs. Now, this fulfilled prophecy in Scripture, by the way. But instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. Is that all I have? Nope. These things happen so that the Scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken last verse and as another scripture says they will look on the one they have pierced okay i'm going to say something this is based on study 
Um, this is not something I can say because I've never seen this. I've never experienced this. But one of the, one of the people I was reading and listening to, uh, he said that a lot of times when you have uh, cardiac arrest, you have like just major shock to the body, which would take place via the persecution and the crucifixion. What will happen is a lot of water would begin to fill up around either the lungs or the heart. Um, I, I, wanna, I actually want to read this because I don't want to mess this up. Did I go too far? No. Atrophy that occurs during cardiac arrest called effusion, and either water builds up around your heart or around your lungs. Uh, you need circulatory shock to get this, to make this happen. So he would have had pleural effusion in order for this to happen, which would mean he was dead. Now here's what's so funny about this. John wrote this not knowing medical science. Luke didn't write this. Luke was a doctor, and Luke wouldn't have even known this. And why do we know Luke wouldn't have known this? Because the early church fathers argued that this was some kind of metaphor, that there was blood and water coming out of Jesus' body in this moment. But because of the way that science has advanced, when we see this, there's an actual scientific explanation for why you would be able to see blood and water coming out at the same time, separated. To prove that he was dead. I mean, this is just astounding. So, Jesus is dead. What about the resurrection? I'm doing great. Awesome. Number one, there's no body. Thank you. When I say I'm doing great, I was looking at the time. There's no body. There's no body whatsoever. Here's the, here's the, if you want to, if you want to stop, if you want to stop people talking about the fact that Jesus rose from the grave, all you got to do is drag a body into the street and say, no, here he is. Right? There's no body. They were never able to produce a body. And with all the people who wanted to persecute and the high, powerful people who wanted to persecute, you would think that they would be able to find a body. But they didn't, and they couldn't. They couldn't make it actually happen. After all, his body was being guarded, so if somebody wanted to get into there, that was going to be an issue. And if somebody had somehow gotten around that, it would be pretty easy to figure it out. Now, we go to eyewitnesses. So the first thing with these eyewitnesses is they never recant their story. They never take back what they say they saw to their death. Not one. If you remember in regards to different faiths, we specifically talked about uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. I believe it was. The Jehovah's Witness, the, the founder, his, his wife later on comes back and says, it was all a scam. Like she admits this before, every, before she passes. She, she comes back and says, no, nah, it wasn't real. Same, same thing with Mormons. You find in Mormonism, people who come back and say, no, nah, that, that wasn't actually a thing. Not one ever recants what they saw all the way to their death. Looking at the eyewitnesses themselves, then there are some things that we need to do to see if they were actually eyewitnesses. So the first thing is, were they there? Well, the dates of the New Testament texts, um, we believe, I, I would argue that all of the New Testament texts were written prior to 61 AD. Okay, so that would be within 30 years of Jesus's death. Why do I say this? Well, we have the siege and destruction of Jerusalem, which would have taken place from 67 to 70 AD, okay? 
Not one author talks about this. And as, if you don't know this, the majority, yes, they were Christians, but they were Jews. They were Jewish Christians. And to see the destruction of Jerusalem would have been so horrific, so horrific, that they would have said something about it. But no one ever does. So we take that and we push it before 67 AD. But then we have other things that push us back even further. We have the death of the apostles like Peter, James, and Paul. And nowhere in any scripture do we see their deaths recorded. We know that their deaths took place between 63 and 65 AD due to historical record. But, again, the historical record outside of scripture. Why? Because it was prior to scripture. I'm sorry, after scripture. I'll mix those up. So we got 63 to 65 AD. Why would you not write about Peter, James, or Paul's death if you're going to write about Stephen's death? Why would you, why would you not write about Peter, James, or Paul if you're going to write about uh, James who nowhere near as important as the other James? You wouldn't. You would write about them unless it was written prior to. Paul, when writing Corinthians, quotes Luke. So again, due to historical record, we know that Corinthians was written between 53 and 57 AD. But Paul quotes the gospel of Luke in his writings. So that way we push the gospel of Luke into the early 50s at the latest. Luke quotes Mark. So Mark was most likely written between 45 and 50 AD at the latest. The gospel authors were there and present. They were within, these gospels were written between, I'm sorry, within 20 years of Jesus's death and resurrection. Now, some of you say, well, that's a really long time. If somebody were to write a book right now about 9-11, and they would be able to gather stories from people, and they would be able to talk about what they saw, and what they remember that day, we wouldn't question that. We wouldn't. And it's the same thing here. Something of the magnitude of the death and resurrection of Jesus is not something you're going to forget. But Luke, Luke does an amazing thing because what Luke does is Luke just doesn't tell what he knows, but Luke interviews and interviews and interviews and interviews. That's what Luke does. That's what Luke and Acts are. Luke just gathers all the information and puts it in a chronological record so that we can understand what actually took place. So were they there? Yeah, they were there. These are eyewitness accounts of what happened with Jesus. Other thing, do eyewitnesses have discrepancies? Do they not line up? All right, so here's one of the things we have to talk about. Your perspective changes how you view things, right? Our perspective changes things. Like, if I go to a restaurant, I'm going to write, I'm going to talk about, I just went to a new restaurant, and I was, one of the things I took out of it was like, man, this place is really clean. I guarantee that probably half of you in this room don't think the cleanliness of a restaurant, you think more food. Or you think more other things. But for me, I just walked in and I was like, man, that place is very clean. Why? Because that is something that I know my wife really values. And if I walk into a restaurant and it isn't clean, we're walking right out. That's just what it is. And so my perspective changes how I would speak about something. 
And when you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you have different perspectives, but all of their stories line up. They don't contradict one another. And in fact, their, their stories line up with archaeological record. Things that they write that don't make sense. Uh, uh, historians, for a while, they were like, there's no way that the pool of uh, Bethesda, I'm sorry, the pool of Siloam was actually a thing because no pool would have been designed the way that the gospel authors described. But sure enough, in the last 20 years, they discovered this pool, and sure enough, it was exactly as the gospel writers had described. They were right. The other thing is, does the story remain the same over time? So the stories line up all at the same time, but then over time, does the story change? Well, the answer is no. John has students like Ignatius, Polycarp, Papias. Ignatius writes letters. Polycarp writes letters. And you have further students. So you have, you have John, you have students of John, you have students of the students of John, and all of them share the same story. As time moves on, the story that Jesus Christ died and rose again on the third day, and the intricacies of the story do not change. Why? Because it's real. It's true. It actually happened. Then you get into something where it's like, this is, this is where people start to struggle, is bias. Well, they have bias in regards to what they're talking about. There's three main motivations in life. Finances, money, right? Relationships, and power or respect, or honor. I mean, those are three things. If you've ever done something wrong in your life, it's normally because you want more money, you want to further a relationship, or you want somebody to view you in a better way. If you think about it, it really comes down to those three things. When it comes to the eyewitnesses, when it comes to the apostles, they really did not get financial gain. <laughs> they didn't. Um, their relationships suffered. Some of these men, they had it going on, and they lost it to follow Jesus. And the third would be power or respect. Now, I could see some of us argue for some individuals that are like, well, well, Peter was a fisherman, and now he's leading, he's leading the disciples. Like, that's, that's, that's a drive for power. Yeah, but how do you explain, like, how do you explain Matthew, a tax collector, who was well like, people were like, I'm going to, this guy gets the money, this guy gets all. How do you explain that, that he was willing to give up being a tax collector to follow Jesus and then never go back? How do you explain Paul, who was heavily honored by the Jews, well-respected, was overseeing the martyrdom of Stephen and other things going on. He's ready to just destroy the church, and yet he has an encounter with Jesus, and he says, no, I'm, I'm giving it all up. I'm giving up all my power to instead pursue Jesus unless that power that Jesus describes is real and he's in obedience to Jesus and therefore he walks that out. Now see, we talk about these biases even more and some people are like, yeah, but they were, you know, obviously they would say this, they, they, they would believe this because, you know, they were, they were there. They were, they were his friends, they were his Christians. But here's, here's the problem with that. If we're going to write off eyewitnesses, what you're basically saying is you're writing off an eyewitness because they witnessed something. Here's what I mean by that. 
I don't write off a witness. I, I got to be real careful here. It's moments like this where I want to tell personal stories, but I can't yet. One day. Okay. Jeremy, I'm going to use you again. You're welcome, buddy. So, Jeremy right now, you know, people like Jeremy. He's great. Jeremy, Jeremy were to walk up here and punch me in the face. Okay? Yeah. I don't know if you could reach my face, but he would punch me in the face. Now, in that moment, you guys, you guys might look at me and go, well, we love Pastor Jonathan, and we're not going to we're not going to lie about Jeremy because Jeremy punched Pastor Jonathan in the face. And now somebody might look at that and go, well, you know what? You're just saying that because you like Pastor Jonathan. Even though you were eyewitnesses of what actually took place, we're going to write off what all of you saw because of your relationship in the situation. That's ludicrous. You wouldn't do that in any other part of your life. And so when we talk about the fact that the disciples had bias, their bias was because they were eyewitnesses of what actually took place. And then we say, well, people are willing to die for what they believe all the time. Worship team, you guys can work your way up here. People are willing to die for what they believe all the time, right? We see it. We see it in the news. It just happened recently. But here's the problem with that argument. A lot of people are willing to die for what they believe to be true. But I don't know anybody who's willing to die for what they know is a lie. I'm going to say it one more time. A lot of people are willing to die for what they believe is true. But I don't know anybody who's willing to die for what they know is a lie. So either... Jesus died and rose again on the third day, and there are eyewitnesses of that, or they aren't, right? And if they didn't actually see that, they wouldn't actually be willing to die. But instead, they did, and therefore, they were willing. There's some other parts about the gospel account that just don't make sense. In, in that time period and in that culture, women were not as respected as they are today, okay? Now, I would argue, moving past Jesus, that women become way more respected, and it's because of things like this. If you were making up the story of Jesus' resurrection in that day, you would actually make a man to be the first witness of his resurrection. But instead, it's women. Why? Because it's true. It's not a lie. Jesus did rise from the grave, and the first witnesses to his resurrection were women. You wouldn't make that up. If you were going to make it up, you would make it like Peter. It was like Peter was the first one to saw him, and it's amazing, and that's why Peter is our leader, and Jesus, obviously this is true. No, it was women. The other thing is Jesus' death and resurrection was predicted by himself. He, it was predicted before him as well. It was predicted with over 300 prophecies spoke of Jesus in the Old Testament before he was ever born. So when we read prophecies, when we read about Jesus, who he said he was, what others said he was, when we look at science and history and archaeology, when we look at the impact his life has had on the earth, 
I personally would argue that, yeah, you could make up some possible doubt, but I believe that there is no way that you could prove a reasonable doubt about the fact that Jesus Christ lived, died, and rose again on the third day. He did. He did. And if Jesus has done this, if Jesus has lived, died, and rose again on the third day, then all the other stuff he did makes sense. All of his teaching becomes valid. And everything that he said he will do, I'm more likely to believe because of what he already did. And so, because of this, we look at Jesus and we say, Jesus, you're worthy of my life because of who you are, because of what you've done. This morning, we're going to sing a song uh, to close out. And so we're going to sing this song as a declaration. If you would stand uh, this morning, and uh, I'm going to turn my mic off and let Doug lead. Uh, but let's just say a prayer and then sing a song of reflection. Jesus, we thank you that we can believe that you rose, that you died. And Jesus, that you're coming back. So Jesus, may we sing the song today, believing and knowing that you are who you say you are and you did what you said you'd do. In Jesus, I pray.